they said at that point that I should get tested because it would actually be a good thing because it's probably what gave me the cancer and it's probably what can help um, really fight it. We'd even gotten a second opinion. That doctor said that my current uh, oncologist was crazy to think that I could actually do six more rounds of the chemo and I'd already done six. He said, he told me that I wouldn't walk, that I wouldn't be able to dress my kids, and at the end of the day, I was gonna die from this anyways. I got down to 89 pounds. I have actually been NED, uh, no evidence of disease, uh, for a little over six years. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories, Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. What I noticed more than anything was how amazing not only my family was, but all the people around me were. Uh, for me also, it was a huge journey of faith. I, I think now I would have um, I would have gotten a test. I always recommend people get it. You know, knowledge, we, Karen and I both agree, knowledge is absolute power. And I think regardless that you do need to find that doctor willing to fight for you. So today I'm interviewing Elise Roth Tedeschi. Seven years ago at age 43, Elise was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Elise subsequently learned that she carried the same mutation in the BRCA2 gene that her older sister Carrie, a breast cancer survivor, had previously been found to carry. Elise is also a marketing and PR executive, as well as a writer, and is currently working on a book related to her journey that should be coming out next year. Elise's sister Carrie had been diagnosed with breast cancer at the same age, 43. She was Elise's advocate throughout her diagnosis and treatment and is also joining us for this interview. Carrie is a practicing attorney and a mother to one daughter who is 26. Thank you both for coming on the podcast and doing this interview with me. It's really have fun to have two sisters on the show. Elise, you were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer when you were 43 years old. How did that diagnosis come about? And did you already know before your diagnosis that you carried a mutation in a BRCA gene? Well, I actually didn't know that, um, that I did have the mutation. And um, it sort of came about for probably six to eight months prior to my actual diagnosis. I started getting really horrible back pain. Um, which just got worse and worse and worse. I kept getting misdiagnosed. Um, I was seeing every kind of doctor to try to curb that pain. And um, really, at the end of the day, I just kept getting in, the pain in my back was getting more extreme. And um, finally, probably about, I would say, seven months into seeking new doctors, they thought I had a slightly bulging disc. They did a whole lot of other tests, but never a CT scan. So finally um, in Atlanta, they did a CT scan and found that it had a large tumor. It did take a whole nother month. Um, and we had to uh, go to Tampa to a um, to Moffitt Cancer Center to finally get diagnosed. Um, so it was just, the pain was not going away. And then finally, uh, January 5th, 2012, um, 
I was told I have at that point um, locally advanced pancreatic cancer and uh, definitely in shock. Um, but we, my sister, with her help and her persistence, for sure, she um, was like, we need to send everything to, to Moffitt. So we were able to send um, all the biopsy slides, all of the previous, um, the previous CT scan. And then um, when we were there, it actually, um, they had told us that uh, I was actually, in fact, stage four, um, that it was in my liver as well. And there were some suspicious spots on my lungs. So it was hugely shocking news. But when I, I would tell you this, when when we were given this news um, and we they had they'd really established a, a tumor board where they go and they look at everything. They've got a team of doctors looking at all my scans and the, the biopsy and such. And at that point, um, uh, with my sister's uh, history and knowing that she had um, that she had the BRCA2 uh, mutation, that they said at that point that I should get tested because it's, it would actually be a good thing because it's probably what gave me the cancer and it's probably what can help um, really fight it. So, in and fact- pancreatic pancreatic cancer in general is often diagnosed late stage, like it was in your case, right? With a really poor prognosis. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I was, I was actually uh, given most of the, they, they really didn't say what, what my specific prognosis was, but he did say in, in uh, most people that do uh, they're in my condition with what I had um, that don't survive more than nine months. So I just, I, I, he was reluctant to say that. And I just said, I just want to know what I'm, know, know what I'm dealing with. Right. And is that at the first center where you were diagnosed or is that when you got to Moffitt that they told you that or both? Um, Moffitt was the one that finally gave me the diagnosis. Okay. And then that's, that's exactly where um, we did do genetic testing and it came true that yes, I was ERCA2 positive and um, it's, there's been many studies that have shown that the chemotherapy that I was given was much more sensitive to those people having, um, having the gene mutation than those that didn't. Okay. And so at that point, you already knew that there was a BRCA2 mutation in the family because Carrie, you had already tested positive for this BRCA2 mutation. Is that right? Right. I had been diagnosed uh, with breast cancer at the same age that Elise was diagnosed with pancreatic at at age 43 and never had genetic testing at the, at the time. But my gynecologist kept bugging me to, to get it done. Um, One, because we have Ashkenazi Jewish background where BRCA2 is more common. Um, And, and also because of the relatively early age, that I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So, um, but I did not do the genetic testing for about five years, but um, after my breast cancer diagnosis, but then did get the testing and found out that I had it. Yeah, and what, um, 
what is it that finally pushed you to actually go ahead and do the genetic testing? Because it sounds like you were pretty hesitant to do it. Or was it a question of getting around to it? Or were you not sure that you wanted to know that information? I didn't really have a hesitancy about the about getting the testing done. I think I was just kind of just too busy living my, my life. I had the relatively, you know, simple surgery. I had a, a mastectomy, didn't have any chemotherapy or radiation. And um, was taking tamoxifen to prevent uh, a reoccurrence, but it was probably through the persistence of my gynecologist uh, because I have a daughter and um, and she just eventually said, you know, really you, you ought to you ought to find out. So the, the confluence of, of those things caused me to get the um, get the testing done. You know, also the you know every person who survived any kind of cancer knows this every time you have a checkup you go through this anxiety and in my case that also those checkups involved more biopsies and which are um, which were no fun and, and I finally said well I need to find out what my risk of reoccurrence is. So when they told you that you did carry a BRCA2 mutation what did they tell you that that meant about your risks for other cancers? Well, they, um, I ended up, uh, I had my breast cancer surgery also down at Moffitt, and I ended up, um, I, my genetic testing was done through an order of a, a local um, oncologist here in Tallahassee, and then the, um, and I got the results in the mail with some pretty good information, but I then made an appointment with the genetic counselors at at Moffitt and we went through all of that in more detail and so I knew about my increased risk for reoccurrence of the breast cancer, the pretty high risk of um, ovarian cancer and I know that they informed me that if I had um, men in the family that had the gene too that I believe they were at higher risk for a prostate cancer and um, if, if they told me that um, I was also at increased risk for pancreatic cancer, I probably just kind of blew right by that information because the percentage was still so low compared to the, you know, the, the really you know, high 50, 60% in range of, of um, you know, the risk for the breast and ovarian the cancers. Breast and ovarian, yeah. So, yeah. And I think they've probably since then, and it's been a while, you know, that they've learned a whole lot more about the linkage between the BRCA um, mutations and pancreatic cancer. They certainly learned a lot more about the effectiveness of the uh, Fulfirinox uh, chemotherapy that Elise had um, with people that have that genetic mutation. How high do studies usually say that the risk of pancreatic cancer is for someone who has a BRCA2 mutation? Well, the increased risk for for the BRCA mutations is somewhere in that five to seven percent, as compared to I think one and a half percent of the general population. And the uh, the BRCA2 mutation is actually a higher, slightly higher risk than the BRCA1. It's still a very low percentage risk, but you know, at least at least got that short straw. <laughs> 
high relative to the average risk, but very low re relative to the other cancer risks that BRCA mutation carriers have to be worried about. Yes. At least Carrie mentioned that the particular type of chemotherapy that you had was much more effective in patients with BRCA2 mutations. What was treatment like for you for your pancreatic cancer? And how do you have a sense of how it was different um, than it would have been otherwise? Well, I, I think regardless, um, I, I think because of my age and, and, and all that sort of thing, I think that you know the, the, the chemotherapy that I did have um, at, certainly at that time was the most aggressive. And, um, and then kind of in fact, um, my oncologist said, hey, just you know, want to let you know that this particular chemotherapy is definitely more sensitive um, for those that do have BRCA2. So, you know, just right before I got tested uh, for the for the gene mutation, he had said, if you are positive, it's going to be a really, it's going to be a very good thing. And it sort of puts you almost in another category. Um, and he had shared stories of someone else that really had uh, stage four, like myself, that had, it had spread, you know, all over. And, um, and had the same chemotherapy and actually did pretty well with it. It's not foolproof, and it and it doesn't put me in that category of like, uh, you know, that I definitely was going to beat it, but it definitely gave me the, the odds were a lot better. Yeah, and I mean that was seven years ago that you were diagnosed. Now, what it what's your status currently? Um, I I have actually been NED, uh, no evidence of disease, uh, for a little over six years. So. Um, I'm truly, truly blessed every day. And I think about when I was diagnosed, um, you know, I have two young boys at the time they were in kindergarten and second grade. And, you know, not only was I getting this pretty significant and tough chemo, but, um, I also, I think had a pretty positive outlook, um, just kind of that, that mindset of like, I'm not leaving my boys. And then I would say, and no one else is marrying my husband. <laughs> so um, I, I think I think the chemotherapy, I think my faith, my mindset um, was probably most important in fighting. I mean, trust me, there were there were some really tough days, and my sister was lucky lucky enough to be with me during those days. Uh, but um, it, it was uh, it was I mean it was tough. The chemo was definitely tough. I did twelve rounds of it. Um, we'd even gotten a second opinion, uh, and gone to another major cancer, uh, hospital and there, that doctor said that my current, uh, oncologist was crazy to think that I could actually do six more rounds of this chemo and I'd already done six. He said, he told me that I wouldn't walk, that I wouldn't be able to dress my kids. And at the end of the day, I was going to die from this anyways. So. Um, that was a pretty, pretty rough, uh, rough appointment. Uh, but I, you know, we stuck with what we were doing. Uh, and really my sister was played such an incredible role. She was not only my sister and not only as an older sister would be a nag, but, uh, she was also my advocate and really was, was being the one that research, looking at new things, trying to absolutely see like, okay, what's next, what's next. And um, uh, it really guided me 
the right way. Yeah. That second doctor who thought that it'd be crazy for you to do 12 rounds of chemo, how debilitating were the side effects? I think you'd mentioned before the interview, you you still kind of kept up with a lot of your activities. Your sons were kindergarten and second grade. You were still going to their soccer games and everything. Um, was that, but I'm not sure if you were referring to toward the end of that chemo or early or what, what was, how debilitating was it? Um, well, I, I got down to 89 pounds. Uh, so I was I was pretty uh, pretty tiny and you know it, it was it was definitely rough. I mean there was neuropathy. Um, I really couldn't you know every every uh, every round of chemo um, kind of had a cumulative effect. So the neuropathy, so my hands and my feet um, would get that numbing sensation, and um, you know and I still have some some of those side effects um, that are still. In my hands and my feet, not nearly as bad as when I was going through it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, to be completely blunt, like everything I ate just went right back out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I felt like I was a little lucky that I, I didn't throw up the entire time. Um, but you know, there, there are side effects, and trust me, there are plenty of drugs to help help with those side effects. Um, some, you know, some of those drugs worked, some didn't. But um, I, I kind of had that attitude of like, it is what it is, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to go through this and, and be okay. But I could walk, and I really tried to live my life as, as normally as possible. I actually um, worked, and I had a home office at the time, so I was really thankful that I got to work because I really felt like I didn't want to sit around and think about, oh, I have cancer every day and feel sorry for myself, and that's definitely not me. Um, you know, I had a pretty, pretty positive uh, outlook on, on everything. Just, I felt like I had to, and I felt if in fact I do have nine months left with my boys that I wasn't, I didn't want to have, you know, have their last memories of me be like so sick, so in bed, not, not being their mom. I mean, there were times that I felt like I couldn't really be their mom, but um, I, I really tried to be present with them. So. Yeah. And your sons are 13 or almost almost 13 and 15 now. Um, do you know how they remember that time? They were so young. I don't know if your older son remembers more. It's kind of funny. I think my younger son actually remembers a little bit more. <laughs> um, I mean, they, you know, they, I don't think that they have really bad memories of it because he had such incredible support from people, um, you know, especially my family. Um, we had my parents um, practically moved in with us in the beginning, and um, my sister was there a lot. My both my brothers and all their all their spouses came too, so they would all sort of take turns being here. And I, you know, I felt like for the kids, like that was pretty great having a lot of relatives and friends were great. Friends would just kind of swoop by and say, "Hey, have your kids ready in half hour. I'm going to go pick them up and." whatever they didn't even ask they just did which was a great thing and um i always think about there's a story that my my older son remembers that sitting on his bed and we're talking about something and i'm talking and midway through the sentence i start talking about something completely different and then i look (laughs) at him i go i have no idea what i'm talking about so (laughs) and he remembers that he goes remember that time but um i mean Chemo brain is a real thing, and uh, I do have 
you know, certainly now looking back, I have some pretty funny stories and I ordered some stuff online once and had no memory of ordering anything online. And, and uh, a few days later, my husband's like, what's this package? I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> it was, was, it, was it something you wanted at least? No, no, it was like, it was like, it was like Cindy Crawford's skincare line. <laughs> clearly, I, clearly that night I needed it. So. Uh -huh. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it was great. People were patient with me. And, you know, I, from work, I had a great support system. Uh, I had a counterpart that kind of, kind of knew when I needed, uh, you know, needed him to step up a little bit more. So, but um, I, you know, I, I think I used to always tell people, look, I, I didn't choose to get cancer. I didn't choose to go through this, but I certainly can choose my attitude. And I, you know, I really choose to be happy and as much as I possibly could. I mean, trust me, there were lots of fear that, that came in and lots of, lots of tears throughout the process. But, um, you know, for me, I just felt like I, I got, I've got to get through this. There's no other option than to live through this. Yeah. And Carrie, how do you remember that time just watching your your little sister go through go through that cancer diagnosis and also knowing that, you know, she had that 50% chance even before the diagnosis of carrying the same mutation that you did? Well, we knew pretty quickly, you know, that she had the mutation because as, as soon as we got to Moffitt and they got all excited that, that she might actually, you know, finding out about my genetic background that, that she might have it too. They got excited because they knew, and at that time it was more anecdotal than, than the research they have now, but the, um, they knew that the chemo was pretty effective with people with that. Um, but you know, the, it was, it was a long, it was a really long year, um, for, for her. And, you know, I think like she said, I mean, she had an incredible support, um, you know, she, she will say, you know, that having, you know, someone like me who would be the interface with the doctors, do the research, you know, and just kind of keep all of the medical stuff going, allowed her to focus in on just, you know, on healing and keeping, keeping her attitude positive. I mean, if you, it's pretty hard to keep a positive attitude if you're the one, you know, trying to fight through chemo brain and look at these studies, which are, you know, they're pretty dire. I mean, it, 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 the, there's such a small number of people that get pancreatic cancer. And like you noted earlier, it, it, it's often not diagnosed until it's pretty well advanced because it just stays hidden that, uh, you know, they, they just don't, the progress of research seemed to be really slow, but that, that seems to be picking up the, the pace seems to be picking up now. So, um, really happy about that. And I was happy to be in, in that role, you know, for her, um, you know, it, it, and we're really different personalities if you hadn't already picked that up, but, um, you know, she, you know, she, she was just like, you know, I'm just going to ignore all this and do what I need to do. And, and at some points I would, you know, I'd say, wow, you're just living in, in a little bit of a fantasy, but there was, it, it it worked, you know, <laughs> and, and, um, it, it, it worked for, for us. And, and, you know, there was never a time when she wasn't getting, you know, the full, 
um, you know, the, the full benefit of all that, that as much as progress of, as there has been in this disease that, that, you know, that she could have. I mean, that, that was sort of the, the beauty of being in a major cancer center for um, her treatment. Yeah. Um, and Elise, so you you already knew that Carrie carried a BRCA2 mutation, and you'd considered getting testing earlier, I think, but decided not to. Is that is that right? Like, how did how did you decide before that you didn't want to have that testing done? Um, and how do you think about that now? Well, <clears throat> I definitely think differently about it now. But I when when Carrie found out that she had um, the mutation. Um, you know, she said you should get tested. So I did talk to my OBGYN about it. Um, and I want to say, I mean, I, I remember thinking, regardless, when she was diagnosed with breast cancer, um, before she got tested for the, um, the gene mutation, I actually had kind of upped my quote unquote surveillance with, um, breast cancer. So I was doing, um, uh, diagnostic mammograms. Um, I was doing MRIs and I felt like I was already sort of covering my bases. You know, I mm -hmm. certainly didn't think about pancreatic cancer and I kind of, I guess in a sense, sort of ignored ovarian cancer. I mean, there, it's an, it's another one where usually when people get tested, it's later. Um, so am I, I, I'm trying to think how old I was when and yeah, you would you would have been very young at the time too, right? Like the risk of ovarian cancer would have been something you know could could happen at any point, but like realistically, that risk was probably years years away for you to be something really pressing. Right. I mean, we, I and I and I just kind of was like, what do I what am I going to do differently? So now you know, kind of after the fact and all that, um, I, I think it's always knowing what now the higher risk of all the other things. Um, I think now I would have um, I would have gotten a test. I always recommend to people get it. You know, knowledge. We, Karen and I both agree. Knowledge is absolute power. And um, you know, maybe it's something where I was having this back pain, and um, oh, I am you know, BRCA positive. Maybe that would have given me more of a chance. Um, maybe they would have done testing eight months earlier. Maybe it would have been a different. Who knows? But um, I, I I would. Now I would do it earlier for sure. Yeah. And with a BRCA mutation, so you mentioned like standard screening for BRCA mutation carriers would be breast MRI as well as mammograms. Some women choose to have risk-reducing mastectomies and then the ovaries removed at some point. But with screening related to pancreatic cancer, the guidelines sort of say it should be within a research protocol and every center does it a little bit differently. So what... Um, what and you're pretty knowledgeable about this area now, I think, uh, in your work um, and having gone gone through this and being connected with different pancreatic cancer advocacy organizations. So, what what do you see as available related to screening for for pancreatic cancer that patients who have a BRCA two mutation or who have a family history of pancreatic cancer should should be aware of our options for them? I would like. You mean take that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I actually participated in, in a clinical trial at Moffitt for five years, and one of our brothers did as well, and it, which involved um, endoscopic ultrasound of our pancreas to for early detection. And um, I'm actually on 
uh, I've graduated from that study and I'm on the hunt for a, another one. And um, I think I uh, maybe mentioned earlier that the uh, I found a number of early detection studies for people of high risk status um, on the uh, on the FORCE website, the facingourrisk.org. Um, they have some great uh, information now, not only about breast and ovarian cancer, but pancreatic cancer as well. And there, there are at least five or six studies going on around the, uh, around the nation for both some sort of blood testing or um, uh, C, uh, MRI, EUS uh, type of testing. Yeah, and we'll include that in the show show notes, the the link uh, to force and specifically a page with those with those studies, if there is one. Yes, there is. Okay, great. And also, you know, um, pancan.org, um, the Pancreatic Action Network, really has amazing resources. They even have a team. Um, if someone wanted to research and look into different studies, um, they have a team that actually. Uh, gets kind of your information and finds you um, a study as well. So they're pretty extraordinary. That's great. And Elise, you're actually working on a book, I think, right? Um, about your journey. Tell tell me, I know, I know I think you said the working title is I Stand Amazed, Cancer Picked the Wrong Girl to Mess With, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, for me, I both, you know, when my sister went through cancer and and then me going through cancer um I, I did feel yes it is very dire it's it's really it's horrible getting that diagnosis but i think kind of what you do with that and then i do think that if you what i noticed more than anything was how amazing not only my family was but all the people around me were um just incredible support. And I just think that you get to see people in a whole nother light, willing to do whatever to help you. And, and I think you get to really see the beauty in people. Um, but the book is really about my journey. And um, I think also everyone deals with cancer differently, uh, really completely differently. I mean, we, my, Carrie and I, we've got two brothers. Um, you know, we had our mom and dad and uh, every, everyone dealt with it differently. Everyone took the news differently. Um, you know, our brother Todd has always been an athlete and he's like, well, you know, you're walking a few miles every day, aren't you? And, you know, and tried to explain to him that, you know, I remember wanting to just really yell at him and I, and I thought to myself, well, that's not going to do anything good. Um, but I trying to explain like what it feels like. And it's really hard to explain that to someone. Um, but it's not only about that journey, uh, it's also about, um, you know, different doctors. And before Carrie insisted on me going to, to Moffitt, prior to that, you know, I've seen all different kinds of doctors, I've seen alternative medicine doctors, because at that point, they had just done an MRI. And in that MRI, it had said, basically, that I had um, a slightly bulging disc. Um, which obviously, in fact, it was being pushed out by a big tumor. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I was really desperate and the, the pain was unbelievable. But I just, I, you know, I do think that um, it's just the journey in general. And there's so many things that you, um, 
that you go through and emotionally. And, and for me also, it was a huge journey of faith. Um, um, I, we grew up Jewish and, and I got baptized and became a Christian throughout it. And it was truly for me an amazing journey. And, and that's what I needed. And so about this incredible relationship I have with God and, um, it, it definitely helped me get through it. Wow. So I actually got connected with you through the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. What is your work like with them? So um, I, I live here in Atlanta, and I am um, a part of the, the team with Purple Stride. Um, I'm, a, I'm a chairperson of media here. Um, and then um, in addition, I'm a volunteer, um, like a survivor volunteer. Uh, so I get lots and lots and lots of calls from other people going through pancreatic cancer. And, you know, it's, I will tell you, it's, I feel like it's sort of a gift to me as well, because giving someone some hope, I think is really helpful. It was hard. I, I do remember that there was an organization that someone had, had connected me with and said, Hey, they'll, They'll line up someone that has gone through um, pancreatic cancer and around your age and, you know, maybe has like kids like you do. And, um, and I remember that they couldn't find a survivor in their, in their database. It wasn't PanCan, but it was another one. And I just, it was, it was a pretty lonely place. Um, but I was able to find um, some fellow survivors through, um, through PanCan, which is great. Yeah, yeah. PanCan is really um, a tremendous resource for in in so many ways, and they really, as Elise mentioned, I mean, they will put they they will assign you uh, um, an advocate um, or it's a, a navigator. I think maybe they call it, you know, just so you're not all alone. Is that someone like? Uh... At least it sounds like Carrie was really your navigator, but for someone who doesn't have that family member or someone who's available to go to those appointments, is that what a navigator would do in part? I I don't I don't think that they actually I don't think they offer that, um, but I think they offer someone uh, with support through the phone. Is that right, Carrie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah, and helping locate people who have you know more knowledge in your area. I mean, this is such a rare kind of cancer and, and if you're if you're not in a major urban center you know your your average you know gastrointestinal doctor or oncologist is is not going to see that many pancreatic cancer patients and so uh, I always think it's a really good idea to go to a center where they see a lot more of it and we'd be up on the very latest research for someone who maybe is listening, has, you know, pancreatic cancer, a family member with pancreatic cancer, um, doesn't live in a major urban area and maybe doesn't easily have the means to really travel to go to a specialty center, what would you recommend to them? It's just starting with one of those like pancreatic cancer action network. Is that the best resource to start with? Or what's, what's the best way for a patient to advocate for themselves if they're not, if they, maybe they have to stay within a community setting or they don't really have access to someone who really, um, you know, has de- dedicated their career to pancreatic cancer, for instance? I, I would say, regardless, I think in the beginning of, um, beginning of your diagnosis, um, where you probably more so have the ability to travel and such, 
I mean, I, I would say if you can get to uh, what's considered an NCI designated um, cancer hospital, um, it's National Cancer Institute Hospital, and those are ones that are doing research that um, you know, all their oncologists not only do office hours, but they really have dedicated time that they're doing uh, research. And to me, I think that's most important because it is changing and there are new things. I do think sometimes if you go to just a regular oncologist and even a, maybe a gastro-oncologist, um, I think that you're going to probably get what they know. You're going to get that same thing. And I think regardless that you do need to find that doctor willing to fight for you. So it's okay to get second and third and fourth opinions and, you know, kind of, kind of have that attitude, like a four-year-old asking lots of questions, like why, 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 why? I'd always say, get prepared before you go to a, uh, um, a meeting with your doctor, because you're gonna, trust me, going through chemo, you're gonna forget your questions. So make sure you've got someone that can go with you, that can help uh, write down uh, you know, notes from the meeting, uh, someone that ahead of time you're writing your questions down so you're really aware. Um, you kind of have to be your own best advocate as well. So, yeah, one of the things that Elise did was, you know, even though her um, her treatment was coordinated through through Moffitt, it um, the they were a, she was, they were able to work with um, an oncologist locally, and and so she didn't have to travel for everything. They just they just coordinated that, um, and and I and I would just echo what she said about needing to have an advocate um, just to advocate for yourself because um, otherwise you you will just get what that doctor knows and Pan Can can help you push and ask um, questions um, and and get you the you know, get you more connected um, with the, the latest information if you can't travel to a major cancer center. But uh, yeah, if, if you can, if you can, you, you should. Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's just still too, it's just so rare that. And the research, the research and available treatments and studies just change so quickly that it's almost, I think almost impossible, like for a an oncologist who sees all different cancer types to really keep up with everything that's available. Yeah. And Elise, you were diagnosed in 2012 for someone diagnosed in 2018 with a BRCA mutation. Um, I think PARP inhibitors are sometimes um, a really good option. Um, and I think you, you've you known someone who, who has used that therapy. Is that right? Yeah. I, I recently talked to someone that actually is also um, you know, BRCA2 positive, and um, and he had pretty similar success um, with beating the cancer, um, like I did. Um, and then now he is doing a study with um, with PARP inhibitors. So um, it wasn't even about when I was doing it. So it's basically, you know, I, I believe PARP inhibitors try to go in and they they fix those genes. So. Very interesting, and or take take advantage of the <laughs> of the of the inherent uh, error in the gene, and just um, keep keep those genes from from replicating themselves by taking them out completely. Yeah, it's maybe something for me to look at later on, and so. <laughs>
Yeah. And what was, so Carrie, I know that um, you, so you had testing done quite a bit after your initial diagnosis and you had testing done through an oncologist, but you also met with genetic counselors, right? Or a genetic counselor, both before and after your testing, even though you got test results in the mail, is that right? Uh, just afterwards. Oh, after, just afterwards. After okay. I had the testing, yeah. What was that um, meeting like? How was it helpful or not helpful? And do you think it would have been more helpful to meet with a genetic counselor before you had testing done? Or do you think it was really sufficient to just get the results in the mail like you did and meet with someone after the fact? You know, for me, it was it was fine the way it happened. Um, and, you know, but, you know, everybody's everybody's different. And uh, I was, you know, I I was a big researcher anyway, and uh, so I had a pretty good idea of if if the answer was yes, what um, what that would involve, and and I didn't do anything with that information for a good year, and then I was doing the was it the CA125 testing for ovarian cancer, and it kind of jumped up unexpectedly, and that kind of spooked me, and then I I, I finally. Um, I finally did do prophylactic surgery and, and uh, remove the the other breast and my ovaries and fallopian tubes. So um, reduce that risk that way. And you know, and that was um, a very positive decision on my part. It was kind of nice to remove that that cloud um, over my my life. And Carrie, you have one daughter. I think she was ten when you were diagnosed. Is that right? Yes. And has she also had genetic testing done at this point? How, how old would she be now? 26? She is 26 now. And when I originally had all of my um, testing, the kind of standard protocol, and I don't know what it is now, was to, um, to do the testing of potential uh, carriers when they reach the age of 25. And my daughter decided to, to do it earlier and um, found out that she did not um, have the gene mutation, but um, that was her decision, and I think she was she was ready for it when she had it. And Elise, you're you have boys, and this is somewhat less of a concern for for men. Although, of course, with a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, that could affect them as well. How do you have a sense of how um, they think about this? If they're how aware they are that they could have the same predisposition toward developing pancreatic cancer, other cancers, or are they just young teenagers and give it no thought at all at this point? Yeah, <laughs> they, um, you know, it's something that I, I'm not sure that we've really, really talked about and gone in depth with, because I do think by the time that they're able to understand that and, you know, maybe 18, 20 to between 18 and 25 or whenever, um, I think at that point there, there might be all new research and there might be other things that, um, that would come out to prevent cancer. So um, it's just not something we've talked about really, but we, but certainly for me as a parent and a mom, I mean, I want them to be tested at some point. And I don't know if um, my sister had mentioned, but my, our mom was, um, you know, had, was, um, had the, the gene mutation as well. And our mom uh, passed away a couple of years ago from bile duct cancer. And essentially, it's not really in that list of things for for BRCA, but I would imagine that they'll probably eventually find that that is. 
or argue, arguably potentially related to pancreatic cancer? It was right there. I mean, right, right next to the pancreas. Yeah. So um, they just they just found that the original tumor did arise in the in the duct, the bile duct between the liver and the pancreas. So you know, I, um, right. So it's something that something that I um, that I'm obviously thinking about um, when I had a discussion with my oncologist about okay, so what else do I need to do preventatively? Um, because there is still you know there's a chance of breast cancer or ovarian cancer, and he he basically said I don't want to go in and change your body chemistry just yet. Um, I still am under quote unquote heavy surveillance. I'm getting. CT scans every six months, but it's something that I do need to really start addressing and talking to my oncologist about um, to see if, you know, if in fact I should go ahead and have, um, you know, have things removed to uh, lower yeah. that risk. But at this point, you still have your, your ovaries and they're just trying to watch you more closely. Mm -hmm. And I... Um, and how... Uh -huh. And I would say too, I mean, I still do the breast femur. Um, I still do the uh, diagnostic um, uh, breast exams um, and definitely more heavy surveillance on that as well. Mm -hmm. So your, your mother also tested positive for the same BRCA2 mutation. And then you have two brothers. One of them I know is positive. Your other brother, is he negative or did he just not have testing done? No, he finally had the testing and, and he was negative. So out of the four siblings, three of us had it. Okay. And Carrie, you mentioned that he was also involved in these pancreatic cancer screening studies. The brother that does have the, um, the gene mutation also did the uh, early detection study as well. How do you both feel that having this mutation in your family has impacted your lives and just all of your experiences with cancer have impacted you. I know, Elise, you mentioned at some point before um, the interview, just in correspondence, that in some ways it was like a gift, a gift in a strange package. Yeah, we, we grew up in a pretty tight family anyways. I mean, we would always say to my mom that it's a rarity that you have, you know, there's four of us um, siblings and we're all really close. Um, it just always have been. I think that was kind of one of the things that my mom and dad really instilled in us that family was, you know, super important. There's, there's really no drama in our family. And, um, I, you know, I always thought, how can it be that our family actually gets closer, but we actually all got closer when this happened. I mean, you know, it sounds crazy, but I think the biggest gift for me was, you know, my sister and I, all of us had even tighter relationships, but my mom, um, you know, I think, you know, you go away to college, you, I, you know, I live the furthest away from uh, where my, my dad lives now, but my, my mom at the time too. And, um, you know, my mom and dad basically came and moved in with us and having that time, I mean, who gets that time when they're an adult to sort of live with your mom in a good way. And um, so I think it was great for me in that sense of, sort of establishing a, a almost a different relationship with my mom. So to me, that was a, that was an incredible gift. Um, and I think you find how just people are amazing and people are, are, you really do see that 
how you've impacted other people's lives. Um, there was a, a benefit for us um, because medical bills, even with great insurance, are incredibly expensive. And, um, you know, the travel, I would go back and forth um, to Tampa and there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of expenses throughout it. But um, we did a, a benefit and people that, you know, probably haven't seen in years all came. People from my high school came. Um, uh, I mean, there was a guy that he videoed, he cut, uh, he cut his hair and donated to Locks of Love, um, like on my behalf. And just people all over the country that I knew uh, would do marathons and whatever and where put my name on their their number um, and I just you know people that you know really that haven't quote really been in my life in a long time uh, just all over just sending so much love and positivity so I, I thought what a gift that was amazing it's a very, very positive spin on it but it sounds like it really uh, you kind of saw how it brought out the best in a lot of people and then, you know, really brought your family closer. Yeah. You know, another thing is that I know it depends on who the person is, but I was pretty, I was pretty vocal of, about my journey. Um, in general, I would post on Facebook and just, I always think like I'm in general, a really positive person. I mean, I was pretty honest throughout my, my journey on Facebook, but I ended up, um, you know, I couldn't believe how many people would would sort of respond back. Um, I would get this crazy number of likes, this crazy number of comments, had people praying for me all over. And it kind of felt like to me, like they were, I had this huge group of cheerleaders and I couldn't let them down. So it made me a little bit stronger. It made me want to fight a lot harder uh, you know, to, to beat this because I'm like, I'm not letting them down. You know? Yeah. So, so that was a great, great thing for me. You had a whole fan club. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people are different and they would just rather kind of go off and deal with it themselves. But you know, for her, it was really helpful to just kind of get all that energy coming from all these people that um, were rooting for her. And, and I, I was the one that first, you know, said, you know, when she was first diagnosed, I said to her, I know you don't believe this now, but um, this can be a gift in a strange package. You're going to have people tell you that they love you that haven't ever told you that. You're just going to find out how much you mean to people. And um, I think it, you know, it, it is a great thing for that. And, and you know, you we're all kind of can do women and and to be able to um just sort of collapse in a puddle and know that you have a whole network of people who are there to pick up after you and um pick you up and you know that that is a gift you know sometimes we just if you don't face those kind of obstacles you really never know that know how people feel about you or or know that you you can falter and there's people to pick you up Yeah. And I found too that um, I, I would say early on in my diagnosis, I had gotten a private message from someone that was kind of like a friend of a friend's and said, Hey, I, you know, I've been reading your journey and 
said, I, um, I just got diagnosed with a cancer that was actually really, really very treatable. And, um, his wife was having a really hard time with it. His, uh, he had a business and didn't want to tell, um, his clients and things like that. And so sometimes, sometimes it's really difficult to tell people. I mean, to me, that was a hard part. I felt like when I would tell people that I was going through this and all that, it was hard because you'd get their reaction and it would just kind of, you know, you find yourself like, it's okay. I'm going to be okay. <laughs> so where uh, you're in the position of comforting them. Right. And, it, and that was hard. And after I probably told a handful of people, I just said, I can't do this anymore. And so I decided to write everyone I knew, um, like all my colleagues and um, a lot of my friends, I just wrote them sort of an email and, and really telling them, look, I, you know, as you know, I've been complaining about my back, blah, blah, blah. And I really basically told them how to feel. I said, here it is. This is what's going on. Um, you know, I plan to fight this. I, I, you know, I welcome your, your prayers. Um, you know, I welcome phone calls and it was just, once I got it out, I wouldn't, I didn't mind talking about it, but just telling someone was a little difficult. So I always think that's a great thing to do. Um, I even had a friend that said, I'm so mad when I got that email, like, why didn't you tell me in person? But she said, I read it like a thousand times and realized that I understood why you didn't tell me in person. So she could react on her own and then talk to me about it. So I thought that was a great thing. And I, and I would tell, and I told people, mm -hmm. don't feel sorry for me. I don't want a pity party because that's just going to make it worse. So I, you know, I plan not to throw a pity party. So I, I really kind of helped people, you know, really kind of told them how, what I needed from them and, and how like, I'm okay. Like I'm going to get through this. And, and sometimes what she needed from them was banana pudding. <laughs> Is that a favorite? <laughs> It was for a short time. It was like the only thing that she liked to eat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, yeah. You remember that stage? Yeah. There were, yeah, there was a point where everything tasted really yeah. bad. And a friend of mine brought over a banana pudding. And I remember that I was making myself a little serving and making my husband a serving. And um, I remember I just made him a really small one and he a really big one. And I was like, I, I think I became a bit of a food hoarder. <laughs> well, at 87 pounds, it sounded, sounds like you needed some calories. Yeah, that's what, what, that's what they said. Whatever it was she wanted to eat was good. So earlier this year, uh, NCCN guidelines were updated and expanded. So at this point, Anyone who has a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, no matter at what age they were diagnosed, or anyone who has a first or even a second degree relative with pancreatic cancer, absent any other family history, meets criteria for BRCA testing. Oh, very good. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I, I just kind of putting it out there for people who might be listening, who might not realize that sometimes it takes insurance a little while to catch up, but also wondering, Elise, if you have, um, if you've, you know, in talking with, with people, do you find that a lot of people have had genetic testing or have not had genetic testing? Or is that not something that, that comes up so much? I, I actually feel like I always ask that question uh, to any person. And 
Um, it's surprising that a lot of them haven't had genetic testing. And sometimes that can be a blessing to do that, obviously, in my case. So I think if you are not sure, and, and I will tell you this, before my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer, there was truly no one in our family that had cancer. So I used to always say, well, I'm certainly never going to have cancer because really no one in our family has had cancer. We had a grandmother that had emphysema. I mean, all of them died of like, you know, a heart attack or things like that, but it was never cancer related. So it's kind of crazy how, how it had all happened. Um, and, and really I would, when my sister got cancer, I was shocked because she was the one that was by far the healthiest, always, you know, would eat right. And, uh, my brother and I joked that you should have had a little bit more fast food, <laughs> but, um, but it, you know, cancer doesn't discriminate and you never know. You never know. And you, I mean, you mentioned you have Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry and that BRCA mutations are more common in individuals of Ashkenazi ancestry. Did, did you realize at the time or, um, did Carrie realize in your family, do you realize that the BRCA mutations are just much more common in individuals of Ashkenazi ancestry, like about one in 40 instead of one in 200 to 500? Yeah, I think, I think we knew that once, once Carrie started, you know, once she did go ahead and get genetic testing, I mean, I mean, if you were to look at our genealogy, I mean, it's, that's exactly what it is. It's all Ashkenazi, Eastern European descent and, um, so it, it was pretty likely that I think that we would, I guess now in hindsight, it would be likely that we would see that. I mean, even from a genetic counseling perspective, you know, with no family history of, of cancer still wouldn't be, you know, you'd think, well, your odds are one in 40, but you know, maybe a little bit less with no cancer history. So, right. I would say this, um, the one thing that my doctor had said to me right in the beginning, because certainly statistics for pancreatic cancer are pretty pretty bad and um i mean i'm officially i'm in the one percent who survived beyond five years having stage four so in that sense i think it's it's sad that there's only one percent and i hope that that grows quite a bit but um he actually told me um was you you have to remember that you are a statistic of one so kind of putting in the perspective of like you're one person. So, and treatment, how you do, I mean, everything is really different for everyone. So, you know, even the statistics being so grave, um, I, I think really in the beginning, I truly believe that I was going to beat this. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. Gray Genetics provides genetic counseling services to patients throughout the U.S. and the world using secure, HIPAA-compliant video conferencing. To book an appointment, visit graygenetics.com. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.